You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. We are going through a new series on the book of Revelation. Something that we never hit on in church and I myself wanted to avoid forever because I just don't get it for a long time. It's just too complicated, too confusing. I remember even taking a class on the subject in college, which was not helpful at all uh, because it was like, here's about 800 different ways you can interpret every verse. I'm like, okay, that's great. Thanks. That was not helpful. (laughs) What am I supposed to go out of here and give everyone 800 ways? Uh, But as I have been further studying the Bible and some commentaries and we spent a whole Bible study uh, 12 away going through this book, I feel like I'm in a better place now to talk about this. In fact, Revelation has strangely become one of my favorite books to go from one that I was afraid of, didn't like, want to stay away from to one that I'm like, this is actually great if you understand what's happening. Let me tell you, what's happening is not left behind. Okay, most of the stuff that we hear about Revelation is like this pop culture kind of stuff that like these are the weird way like uh, these locusts in Revelation with iron teeth. These are actually helicopters, modern day helicopters that John saw, stuff like that. No, that's not what's going on. And things like left behind, honestly, I don't even really see the rapture in the Bible, if I was to be honest with you. Uh, There's one verse that seems to imply it, but it's just like one verse in a whole giant Bible full of other ideas. Um, So when the whole like focus of Left Behind is starting somewhere just very off base with Revelation, where the Christians have to live through the tribulation and suffer through the tribulation, well, you know, Left Behind is going a very different direction, things like that. I like the books. I read them when I was a kid. I have a friend who got saved while reading them, so I see value in them. Uh, just, uh, it is fiction in the end, you know? Um, so here's what I'd like to kind of start you with to understand what Revelation is. And if you have general questions starting right now, if you have general questions about the book of Revelation, like from a full perspective, feel free to put it on the screen. We're going to read through Revelation 1 tonight, so you'll have questions pop up. But if you have big questions right now, feel free to write them down. Uh, Just don't get too specific on anything, because we're going to cover the book as we go along throughout the months. Um, But here's what you need to know about Revelation. It's three different kinds of dramas. Sorry, three different kinds of genres. Um, Today you see genres mixed, right? What's a dramedy? Drama comedy, right? Or a rom-com, right? Uh, Romance comedy. You know when you go to see something like that, you're experiencing two different kinds of things together. Or that movie yesterday that just came out a while back, that was like a sci-fi romance musical, right? Like, you go and you see it, you're like, I see the different aspects, and I don't just call this like one kind of movie because there's just too many genres going on. Book of Revelation is the same thing. There's a lot of different genres going on, and you need to be sure that you're reading it in the right kind of genre. First off, it is a letter. It is a letter. John is going to say, I've written this to you guys, and I want it to be circulated among the churches. 
The church in Philadelphia, not our Philadelphia, a different one. Uh, church in Philadelphia, here's a letter for you. Church in Smyrna, here's a letter for you. Church in Laodicea, here's a letter, letter for you. Like, it's partially a letter. He's writing to real people who existed at his time, not people who exist today. Yes, there is some future telling of stuff that hasn't come yet, but he's writing it to his own audience. So one, it's a letter. Secondly, it is a, uh, it is a prophecy. The prophets in the Bible speak uh, to people about how they're acting now, how they need to change, how God wants them to change, and about things that will happen down the road if they don't change and things that will happen down the road if they do change. Prophecy is God speaking to someone and them speaking it out. So John is not just writing just a standard letter. He's also writing prophetically. Thirdly, it's an apocalypse. When we think of apocalypse, we think of a desert landscape with zombies and people who are all grody running around, right? That's like the kind of movies we think of when we think of apocalypse. That is not uh, the genre of apocalypse for Bible writers. Let me, let me say this. If you had ever read another apocalypse, you would know it, <laughs> okay? So like uh, the book of First Enoch, it's not scripture, but it inspired the people who wrote scripture. If you ever go and read the book of First Enoch, you're going to be like, holy cow, I found another book that feels like Revelation. Like there's angels showing up, delivering these messages, taking people to weird places, and there's symbolism like happening all over the place and God is coming to reign on the earth and just all this stuff is happening. Enoch is an apocalypse. So when John is writing his apocalypse, he is writing in a specific kind of genre that the people of his time understood. We don't get it anymore because we don't have people writing apocalypses. That is why it is incredibly important as Christians that when you read the book of Revelation, you're not just reading it with 2019 eyes. You're trying to get inside of John's head. How did he understand apocalypse to work? Because he's writing in a genre of his time, right? Mm -hmm. If the world was to get mostly blown up today and have to start over and in 100 years, they found a library and in that library, they found the Hobbit. They would be like, what on earth is this kind of literature? Did this actually happen in history? Was there actually tiny little people running around with wizards? You know, like... Because they'd be that far removed from the ideas of fantasy that they'd have to like get inside of Tolkien's head to re-understand it again. In the same way, we're so far removed from apocalypse that you have to get inside of John's head to understand it again. So it's three things. Number one was... Well, not a romance comedy. <laughs> that was an example for it being a letter. It's a letter... It's a prophecy, and it's an apocalypse. At any given time, you may be reading a section meant to just be a letter, meant to just be a prophecy, meant to just be an apocalypse, meant to be just apocalypse prophecy, meant to be a letter prophecy, meant to be an apocalypse letter prophecy, right? Like, you have all these different ways in which it gets confusing together. If you want to read along, we will be reading through Revelation 1 as long as there's time tonight. And honestly, with our music going haywire, we have more time to spend on this. Okay, so as you have, I'm going to read in like paragraphs or sections. As you have questions about what I'm reading, just ask them, okay? They'll show up on the screen. If you see someone ask a question that you want an answer, you like their question, and it'll say like, hey, really pay attention to this one. Okay, Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are the ones who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. All right, I see we have a question about the double-edged sword. We're going to get to that one, so we'll keep that up there for now because we're not quite there yet. Does anybody have any questions on this particular passage that we just went over? And let me say this while you might be writing one. Uh, John is constantly referencing Old Testament passages all the time. So you want to know why Revelation is even more confusing? It's because it's a hodgepodge of the rest of the Bible, pulling elements from all over the place and incorporating them in a fresh new way as the Holy Spirit leads John. John must have had like this whole thing memorized. Because in like two words, he'll just say two words and you may not catch it, but he's referring to something else. So like even at the beginning, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that word revelation and the way that he's using it comes from Daniel 2. If you went to Daniel 2, you would see uh, John saying, uh, sorry, you would see Daniel interpreting a dream. And the dream is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it's about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, followed by a uh, followed by a new kingdom coming and another kingdom coming, and these kingdoms crumbling until God's kingdom is established and God's kingdom goes on forever. So right there at the very beginning of this, when John is saying the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he's using that word to make you think of Daniel too, he's saying, hey, you you remember Daniel had this prophecy about how these kingdoms would rise and fall? Well, right now we're in the midst of those rising and falling kingdoms. But Daniel reminded us that at the end of all this, God's kingdom would be established and we would live forever and God's kingdom would never fail. What's the book of Revelation about? It's about rising and falling kingdoms coming after Christians. But in the end, God's kingdom is the one that remains. So even in the very first word, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is reminding us to think of Daniel 2, to think of that prophetic word, that this whole book is a uh, movement upon that word. Okay, I don't see any questions, so let's keep moving. Verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Okay, did you catch that? It's a letter all of a sudden. He's writing a letter. Hey, seven churches, not churches that are made up, not churches that are here today. These are churches that were in John's time. In fact, John is on the island of Patmos, and from his island, he can see all seven of those cities. So imagine being stranded on an island and looking around you in every direction and praying for these churches that are in these cities. And then putting together a letter to send to all of them. It's part of what Revelation is. So now we're into uh, a letter to seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, 
He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, who is to come, the Almighty. All right, let's pause for a moment. Question, what are the seven spirits? Great question. Look, when I was a kid, I already found the Trinity confusing, right? (laughs) Like God is... Three, but one. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is something that the Bible communicates time and time again. In fact, John, of all the people in the Bible, he runs this point home that Jesus is God probably more strongly than anyone else. He loves this thing, and he hits it over and over again. So when I was a kid, already struggling with the Trinity, now I'm seeing in heaven there are seven spirits. In my mind, instantly is thinking, okay, The Holy Spirit must be seven spirits. (laughs) So you have Father, Son, and the Holy Sephinity. You know, I don't don't even know what the seven would be, right? But you have the Holy Spirit, and then he's divided into seven. I'm just trying to do my math. And then you look into what a lot of commentaries would say, and they would tell you, like, uh, that the seven spirits are meant to symbolically represent God. You can get away with this, okay? So if you were to go to like books like Zechariah, there's a, uh, a vision of sorts that shows God in kind of a seven kind of way. If you went to Isaiah, Isaiah references the Spirit of the Lord who is the Spirit of wisdom and counsel and might. And by the end, he's phrased seven different things. So it could be like a, he's quoting these old passages. You know how God is found in these seven ways. Here's, what, here, here's why I don't fully understand this, okay? It's already hard enough to grab onto the Trinity. Even if you're writing an apocalypse, to me it seems like not the greatest idea to even symbolically try to say the Holy Spirit is seven because these are people who are already running around with all kinds of heresies. So now if you're getting this idea that the Holy Spirit is seven, then it just gets even more confusing. So then what are the seven spirits? In my opinion, they're the archangels. Your Bible only talks about one archangel named Michael, but in Jewish literature, and remember, Jewish literature is where the other apocalypses are. In other apocalypses, in other Jewish literature, which John clearly has read because he's writing in that genre, there's always seven archangels. Seven angels who would be around God's throne and and carry more power Uh, than just an average messenger angel or any kind of other angel. So seven spirits, in my opinion, John's just working with the kind of apocalypse everyone already knows. There's seven angels who carry a lot of power around God's throne. And you might push back and be like, well, it says spirits. No, that's actually just Jewish writing. The Jews always uh, synonymously could use spirits and angels to mean the same thing. The reason that is is because angels are not physical beings, they are spiritual beings. So sometimes when you read through Jewish literature, they'll be referring to an angel, but they'll call him a spirit. So the seven spirits around God's throne, that's what I would say. Uh, Does the seven spirits have any connection to the seven churches John is writing to? That's a good question. Uh, (laughs) Here's something you have to recognize. The number seven is going to come up 800 times. I'm using a big number to exaggerate. The number seven is going to come up a lot of times throughout Revelation. Um, 
And that's because this is an important number to the Hebrews, to the Jewish audience. What seven means to a Jewish audience is completeness. It means fullness. It means kind of perfection. The reason for this is partially because of your weekday, right? God makes the earth in six days, but on the seventh day, he has reached completion. He's reached the fullness. He rests. He takes a break. Therefore, people are to celebrate a Sabbath and also take that rest, also take that break. But the reason that you're to do that is not just to remember something that happened a long time ago. It's to remember something that's happening down the road. That one day there will be an ultimate Sabbath that is coming on the earth in which we will all finally catch our breath. Christians will be able to breathe again, take a break with God's presence fully on the earth. It's perfection. It's the fullness of God. It's completion. And so John uses that number seven all the time because what is Revelation about? It's about that completion finally coming when God's kingdom is established on the earth. So seven uh, is just kind of always trying to make you think of completeness, fullness, the end of all things. So could these seven spirits have connection to the seven churches John is writing to? Maybe, because John actually says uh, to the angels of these seven churches, does 1208 have an angel? I have no idea. But there actually was uh, an understanding. When we unearthed the Qumran documents uh, some time ago, and we started reading uh, this giant library of how these ancient people who followed God used to think, it was very clear that when they would gather together to worship God, they always believed that angels were present too that they would show up and worship God with them. So there is some merit, at least from an ancient perspective, that when we gather together as a church, angels will join us in worshiping God as well. So could churches be appointed, or could angels be appointed to churches? Are those the seven churches, the seven angels? Maybe, but again, we can only do so much because apocalypse is very strange writing in the first place. Uh, Any other questions? Yeah. You talk about seven different spirits. Uh, do you know why they never canonized the Book of Enoch? Uh, the Book of Enoch was found to be literature that was roaming around with uh, Scripture rather than being considered Scripture itself. So there were a bunch of books that the um, Catholic Church still has called the Apocrypha that we used to all have in our Bibles. And then it was discovered at one point, like, hey, Um, the Apocrypha used to just kind of be distributed along with the Scripture and wasn't supposed to be considered Scripture itself. So some of the church took it out while some of the church still keeps it in. Well, I mentioned because it's really... You think the Son of Spirit are confusing. The Book of Enoch is really confusing. Yeah, um, but, you know, they didn't write it with us in mind. Oh, didn't they? John wasn't writing to people in 2019, especially because they all thought the end was coming within one generation. So so to some extent, they weren't thinking, I really got to explain what the seven archangels are so people 2,000 years down the road are going to understand what I'm saying. That's why we have to do a lot of investigation today to understand more clearly what they're saying. Um, if we were paying attention, even what we just read, we would see that he's continuing to quote scriptures. He talks about Jesus riding on the clouds. Throughout the Old Testament, God is seen as riding the clouds Throughout uh, Daniel, the Son of Man, which is Jesus, is seen as riding the clouds. So even just by saying that Jesus even himself says to the Pharisees, you're going to look up and see me riding on the clouds. 
So you even see just when John is stating that, that he's quoting like tons of verses, not just one. Does anybody know who the cloud writer was in ancient times? Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson. He's one of saying that song. As ancient as he is, I don't think he's quite he's that ancient. He's that song, Seven Angels. <laughs> oh, okay. He had that song out. Gotcha. Well, um, what was that? Sorry. Baal was the one that was right there. Yeah, Baal, Baal, Baal. Yeah, so in ancient times, Baal, this false god that, uh, that um, Israel kept getting seduced by and following him instead, Baal was known as the cloud rider. Uh, so what Jewish writers loved to do from time to time was snub other people's gods by saying like, hey, y'all know Baal, you know how he's riding the clouds? That's actually Yahweh. He's the one riding the clouds. And then they take it a step further with Jesus. Yeah, you know Jesus? Yeah, he's, he's God. He's riding the clouds. So again, you see uh, John again, like, connecting between, um, connecting Jesus to be God very openly as he writes. All right, if you have more questions on that section, just write them down. Looks like one just popped up. Ah, what does it mean that Jesus is the first begotten of the dead or firstborn of the dead? What it means was Jesus was the first to be resurrected. So throughout history, even in your Bibles, there have been other people who have been raised from the dead, right? Uh, Elijah raised a guy from the dead. Elisha raised a guy from the dead. Jesus raised a few people from the dead. Peter raised a kid from the dead. Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. There's a few people who get raised from the dead. Being raised from the dead is not the same as being resurrected. Resurrected, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is putting on a new body that's more or less immortal. It's imperishable. It can't be hurt. It's uh, designed to live forever. And when God installs his kingdom on the earth, all Christians put on this new resurrected body and live on this new earth with God. That's what resurrection is. And since Jesus was the first person not just to die and come back to life, but to die, put on the resurrected body, and come back to life. Jesus is therefore the firstborn. He's the first one who made it past death in the way that like, he never goes back to death. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but now he gets to die all over again, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Jesus is raised from the dead, and now he lives on forever in this imperishable body. So um, what does it mean to be the firstborn of the dead? It means that Jesus is the first to be resurrected, which says something to you, too, because as Christians, it's a reminder of Jesus is the firstborn and you're his brothers and sisters. You, too, will be the second raised from the dead, third raised from the dead, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, So that's what that means. Feel free to keep putting up old questions as we go along if we've already passed that spot. I, John, we're in verse nine now. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatria and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. We now just cross genres again, right? This is a letter, but God is instructing the letter, therefore making it a prophecy. So now we have a prophetic letter going on. (laughs) 
Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. All right, we already had a question, so let's cover that one. Uh, Was it important that the double-edged sword came from his mouth in uh, verse chapter 116? Also, why is it specifically a double-edged sword versus like a katana? Casey? (laughs) As soon as you brought up Japanese stuff, we all knew it was you. I mean... Or Alec, I guess. <laughs> um, all right, so why is it a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth? This is actually hugely important to me. Revelation has a lot of violence, and that's part of the reason I'm always afraid to read it, especially because Jesus looks like he's the violent one, right? I think you're going to be surprised to see that it's not as much the case as you think it is. Starting with this passage, where is Jesus' sword? It's in his mouth. He's not walking around slashing people. His words are his sword, right? The Bible talks about uh, the sword of, sword of the Spirit, right? Yeah, it's the word of the Lord right here. Jesus' words are his weapon. Which kind of makes you think of Genesis, right? In Genesis, God can speak and things come to be. Now in the end in Revelation, when things are being deconstructed to make way for new stuff... Jesus can speak and things will no longer be. So here in, in this passage, you have Jesus. Is there violence? Maybe. But it's because of the words that he speaks and it's because of the authority he has to speak them. Double-edged is just like furthering the point that like this is a very strong weapon. He doesn't need a katana uh, because it's sharp on all sides. You know, like no matter what angle he comes at you, it's going to do the damage that it's going to do. So when you, look at, uh, um, when you look at the sword coming from Jesus' mouth, this is where we've just kind of crossed over into apocalypse. There's a lot of symbolism right here. Jesus' mouth is his weapon. Keep that in mind. Uh, any other questions? Yeah, I think so, right? Yeah, it escapes me at the moment, but I'm pretty sure you're correct on that. Uh, any others on this spot? Uh, one thing that I would point out is Jesus, again, is being likened kind of towards God. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. That's a reference back to Daniel 10 where God is seen as the Ancient of Days, and his hair is white like wool, like snow. In fact, it goes on uh, in Daniel... No, that was... That's somewhere in Daniel. In Daniel 8 or Daniel 10, you see a man talk to Daniel. It says he's a man, but he seems to be an angel, but also seems to be like a man. And that man has burnished uh, bronze legs... Uh, He's got uh, eyes like flame of fire. 
And in Daniel, his voice is like a multitude. So you almost get this impression from what you just read that Daniel was the one always talking about the Son of Man coming, this Jesus character. And you almost get the impression right here that John's saying, hey, remember that man-like angel that Daniel talked to? I'm describing Jesus as the same guy. It makes you wonder if John's trying to say, like, Jesus has shown up before and talked to Daniel before he was born of humanity. That takes us into a whole other rabbit trail all throughout the Old Testament. There is the angel of Yahweh, who is a very specific angel who always acts like God. People treat him like God. They worship him like God and uh, can sacrifice to him in kind of ways and that he receives it, uh, which makes you think like um, we know that Jesus has always been around because the Bible tells us he's never not been around. And here you see John kind of saying like that being that's always been around, sometimes called the angel of Yahweh, sometimes called the word of God. Jesus was him. When he became Jesus, it was just him putting on flesh and living among us. But he's always been here. Uh, so that always stands out to me. You remember the story where uh, Jacob's wrestling with an angel? And at the end, he's like, tell me what your name is. And this angel, who is apparently God, says, why do you want to know my name? It's too wonderful. He tells the same thing to uh, Samson's parents. Why do you want to know my name? It's too wonderful. I always get shivers like, it's Jesus. It's Jesus right there, right? Like, he's going to show up later and tell us his name or tell us his full name down the road, you know. Um, all right, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. See, so there are this idea of angels over these churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That brings us to the end of our section today. So if you have any questions over those, now would be the time to write them down. What results from Jesus obtaining the keys to death in Hades? All right, let me back up here. This is a, for me, this is a huge story that's going throughout the Bible. If you were to take into account everything that seems to talk about Satan in the Old Testament and the New Testament, here is the general narrative the Bible sets up. Satan used to be a beautiful, wonderful, perfect spiritual being known as a cherubim, which is a guardian of God's throne in ancient times until one day he got prideful and he started to turn in on himself instead of on God. So the Bible says that God responded by sending Satan down to the earth, to the lowest places, to where the dead go, to Sheol. He is cut down to the lowest, lowest place. So since he is there, you actually see Satan uh, then tricking Adam and Eve, right? Into eating of the fruit that they're not supposed to eat. And because they do that, there's this idea that Satan now has a certain kind of authority over humanity. Because rather than choose to follow God and what he has, they've chosen to follow Satan and what he was offering. And because of that, there's a new curse 
on the earth. We weren't supposed to die. We were supposed to be able to eat from the tree of life forever in God's presence. But instead we chose Satan. So God says, then you can't eat from this tree anymore. You have to leave Eden. The consequences is this curse that's put on the earth, that's put on humanity, in which we are now subject to death. And the Bible looks at Satan as the Lord of the dead. Um, Baal, the good thing about Baal, that he would ride the clouds, the authors of the Bible stole that and put it on God, right? No, Baal's not the real cloud rider. Yahweh is the real cloud rider. But they took negative ones and they put it on Satan. So Baal, um, in Hebrew, his name was uh, sometimes known as Baal Zebul. Does that sound familiar? In the New Testament, it's the word Beelzebub. Which means, since uh, Satan is referenced as being Beelzebub, Beelzebub means Lord of the Dead. And so they took the bad title that Baal had, and they gave it to Satan. Like, yeah, Satan's actually the Lord of the dead. He's the one who has the power of death because we've turned our lives over to that power that he now carries in the realm of the dead. Now, if you fast forward to Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that Satan Satan has the power of death. And here in Revelation, you see Jesus taking the power of death. Now, did God never have the power of death before? No, I wouldn't say that. God is in charge of everything, including everything that's rebelled against him. So in a sense, he still has power over all these things. But Satan is the one who is known as the one who has death, who has power over that. And when Jesus, being a perfect human being, because he's God, when Jesus dies, because Satan actually, uh, the Bible is shown as Satan setting Jesus up to get him killed. When Satan has Jesus killed, I imagine it this way. Jesus getting to Sheol, the afterlife, and being like, you can't kill me. You broke the rules. You broke the curse. I'm perfect. Only people who sin are subject to death. So when you killed me, you broke the rules. I will take these keys now. Yoink, right? Like there's this idea of Jesus going up to Satan. You've been tricked. Jesus almost seen as the Trojan horse. Is that a good analogy? Right? It looks like Satan's getting something good, but then he finds out like Jesus, God is inside, and he takes the keys. You shouldn't have killed me. You shouldn't have done that. And now Jesus ascends to power, and he has the keys to death and Hades, which is to say that Jesus can both lock and unlock the door. Hades is not hell. Hades is the Old Testament concept of Sheol. Hades is the place where all spirits go when they die. Hell is like this uh, end times fire punishment of sorts. But Hades was always this place where like, if you die, it's just where you go. It's where all the dead go. It's not a pleasant place. It's not an unpleasant place. (laughs) Uh, But it's not a a great place. Yeah. Okay, then when Jesus said to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise. Then where does that fit in? Jesus has the keys to Sheol, to Hades. So if the thief is going to die, well, Jesus can unlock the door and bring him in, right? So on top of that, uh, that's always been the case is that God could always choose who came out of Sheol because Moses and Elijah are clearly with God at the transfiguration. And God, Jesus says, God is a God of the living. 
implying like some of these people, yeah, they died and went to Sheol, but God let them out and brought them into heaven because they followed him. Otherwise, everybody has this kind of like eternal destiny here, and then eventually it's separated between heaven and hell. Hell where everything ends, and heaven where everything goes on forever. So, um, with that being said, Jesus has the keys of death. If you want to live forever, he can unlock that and bring you to that place. If you want to stay with death, he can lock you in there if he feels like that judgment's right. Likewise, uh, Hades, he has the keys to the place where all the spirits are. He can unlock it and let those out to live with him forever, or he can lock it. So either way, um, whatever the case may be, like Jesus is now seen, like he has all authority. Again, he is God. Everything has been given to him. And the way, of course, that we escape death, that we escape Hades, if this is new to you, I'll end on this, um, is by coming to Jesus. Uh, what we just read, Jesus says, look, when I died on the cross, John says, like, I became the sacrifice for your sins. And because of that, you have become a royal priesthood. When you became a priest in the Old Testament, you sacrificed an animal, you put your fingers in the blood, and then you sprinkled it on the priests, which made them holy. Here in Revelation, John just said Jesus died as a sacrifice, and now you're a royal priesthood. There's this idea of like the blood of Jesus has now been sprinkled on you, and now you are holy. Holy, by the way, in Methodist words, that means like we're moral people. In biblical words, it means God owns you, right? Because the holy land is holy. Is, is the land moral there? No, land does not make decisions to be moral. It's holy because God owns it. The Ark of the Covenant is holy. Is that because the Ark made good moral decisions? No, it's holy because God owns it. If you are a Christian, you are a holy one. Are you holy because you're moral? No, we all make mistakes. But you are holy because God owns you. You are his property. I hope that gives you a little bit of relief. You know, we're always trying to achieve our holiness. It can't be achieved. It's designated to you. Uh, I know I've been flip-flopping a lot, a lot up here. Uh, if you, why am I doing this? This doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> if you don't know Jesus, if you feel like you haven't made that decision to let Jesus sprinkle his blood on you, I know that's kind of a weird image, but it's the ancient concept. Be holy, be God's, and follow him, and become a priest, which means like you mediate between the divine and the uh, uh, physical, you can enter into God's presence where his Holy Spirit is. If you haven't made that decision, that decision's on the table for you tonight. It's always there. They thought their revelation was going to happen a lot sooner. And a lot of it did. But the full end where Eden and God's new earth comes to be, that hasn't happened yet. And the reason the Bible says it hasn't happened yet is because God just wants more to be saved. So if you're not saved tonight... The good news is God's waiting to come back partially because of you. <laughs> he loves you too much and he wants you to know him so that in the end he can unlock Hades for you. He can unlock Sheol for you. He can unlock death for you that you would live forever with him in his kingdom and his presence. So that is on the table for you tonight. Um, what we're going to do right now is just sing one song as we close out and take communion. So... Um, if you want to make that decision tonight, first off, uh, all of us who have been following Jesus will partake in communion. But if you haven't made that decision yet, and tonight you want to make that decision, 
then uh, I would suggest you come take communion for the first time. And then you talk to me after service. I'd just love to hear what God's doing in your heart.